0: Welcome to the best of seven podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Phillips, the senior writer of the big lead. And here I am with Kyle Coster, the managing editor of the big lead. And we've got a really fun topic today that I'm really excited to explore. And, and I know Kyle is as well. We're going to go into our personal favorite athletes of all time, the top seven for each of us. These are guys who we're not talking about multi-time all-stars or pro bowlers or the famous guys. These are guys that have a sentimental, we have a sentimental attachment to, for some reason, not the first guys you'd think of on a team guys that for some reason, we have a connection to and love all these years later. Some of them go back a long time. Some of them are still playing, but guys that we are into that a lot of people probably aren't. And and I think everybody has these athletes. If you're a big time sports fan, you have the bench guy you love. You have the guy who's a rotation player, who's done something that you have just made you fall in love with him and you watch him and you cheer harder for him than anybody else. And so this was a really, it was a hard list to come up with, but really
1: rewarding going
0: through it. Kyle, what was your experience sort of looking back on this and, and figuring these guys out?
1: It was such a great trip down memory lane you know, when you thought about all these athletes, I was transported to the place I was when I remember that when they did, maybe there are one or two special things. I remember who I was with and I remember how much it stood out. Like what's so funny about when we talk about our favorite athletes of all time, they're big name people. They, we have this shared experience where we can all remember their apex or we all have these indelible memories with these guys and these gals on our list. We're looking at them and like, it was special, maybe only to us and and the two buddies we texted with to say, oh my gosh, Jim got in the game, blah, blah, blah. Or, I love this new middle reliever who he always gets the big outs and stuff like that. And w- what it's reflective of too, largely, I was looking at this number one, it's regional. It's usually people who were on teams you cared about. Absolutely.
0: And- that is huge on my list <laughs>
1: Is is regional guys I was connected to. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's also usually reflective of having a close relationship with the team because you know the people down the bench. Now it's changed a lot where every game is on television and you kind of know the whole league, but I think even when you and I were growing up, you kind of were relegated to the teams within your division to know all the way down the roster with, with, with the bench guys or the bullpen and stuff like that. So it's usually reflective of a person from a team that you care a lot about and you've invested a lot of time. And these players usually took pretty significant return on your investment because you had to wait for them to get their big moment and succeed in the clutch. And then you could tell all your buddies that you were right about this guy all along.
0: Yeah. And I think what's, what's interesting about it is you mentioned your two, your two buddies you text with. So I have two best friends. One, I met the first day of second grade and one has been sort of joined our little friend group in seventh grade. I texted them about this and we have a group text. We text every day and I texted them about this. Like guys, who are some of these guys? And they listed like 50 guys. I'm like, I don't even remember half these guys. And, you know, so it was a lot of like looking at old rosters, like, Oh my God, that guy, you know? And It it was really a fun trip down memory lane. You're right, because there's so much to dig through here. And I... Again, some of these guys, people will remember some, they won't, but I think the interesting part of this is what your connection is to them, what our connection. And then at home listening, you can make your own list, you know, I mean, because everybody has these people. So I, I just want to dive right in. Cause I'm really fascinated. Obviously I'm not from the Michigan area as you are, Kyle. So I'm sure you're going to have a lot of different guys on this list than I am me coming out of Southern California. I know it's going to be very regional for me. I want to know who, who is
1: your number seven on this list? So number seven is Mike Keebler. He was a guard at Michigan State. He was a bench guy. He was a walk-on that elevated his play to the point where he could get meaningful minutes. And I think uh, you're a big college basketball fan, and I am as well. There's a huge transformation that happens when a guy comes in in garbage time, when it's a 30-point game, and it's just playing mop-up duty and getting his name in the stat sheet club trillion. I believe. Yeah, I was said. just about to mention that. <laughs> That's way different than someone who can come in and in a, in a break glass and c- case of emergency game at Purdue, when you need six competent minutes from someone and you turn to them and you say, okay, you're in, if you get the ball pass it, but you're just existing on the court. And Mike Keyboard was one of those guys. He was a really athletic lateral type guy but you know his he did not light up the stat sheet and he was so reluctant to shoot the basketball I can give you his totals for his career four years at Michigan State he averaged less than a point a game he, he played 6.1 minutes per game in his career and in senior year he played 10 but in his first two it was like 1-1 one, one, and 4 so he was elevating and it was so funny about this team so he gets on this team that was really talented, but for whatever reason, the clutch moments of the game seemed to revolve around what Mike keyboard was going to do. If he was going to lock down on his defensive assignment, or if he was going to hit the one of uh, one shot that he took in the game. And he became this kind of like avatar is like our hopes rest on this guy. I distinctly remember his breakout performance was in the big 10 tournament in a game against Purdue that Spartans desperately needed to get into the tournament. He had six points, including a late steal and a layup. And then a, uh, he threw down a pass from Draymond Green for a thunderous dunk. And it was like watching your grandma dunk. You just, you didn't even know how to process it. It was just one of these moments like Keebler did what? So for that, he's a little bit a uh, representative of a love. I blame it on loving the movie, Rudy. But I have a soft spot for walk ons and underdog stories, and I like to see them do very well. So he probably represents a whole other group of uh, personal favorites of mine. So Mike Keebler, number seven.
0: Uh, Yeah. Keebler. I remember just, I mean, this, this would be one of the rare ones that that I remember. And, and he started some games in his senior year. I remember that and he was super athletic and just not a guy you expected to do anything, but he was pretty athletic. And I I remember him. And that's, that's a great choice. Like the ultimate underdog story, I think totally, especially on that Michigan state team that had so much, you know, in the four years he was there, they had a lot of talent. So for him to crack the lineup.
1: Well, think about what I just said. I just said he threw down a pass from Draymond Green. So, lots. He was if he could hit down if he could knock down a seventeen footer was a big difference in a lot of game when you had people like Draymond Green on the team. Who do you have at number seven?
0: Number seven for me is a guy who played for the San Diego Padres from nineteen ninety three to ninety eight. His name is Arky Cianfraco. and he was a a utility infielder type, played mostly first and third base. One of these guys who. You know, baseball players, when they get up to that like six foot five area, they kind of look awkward on a field because baseball players are typically smaller guys, you know, around six feet. I don't mean tiny, but he stood out, you know, in a lineup of of guys. And he was this tall kind of lanky guy. And he just, for some reason, became a huge fan favorite in San Diego. His first year with the team, he hit like uh, it was 11 home runs, and 47 RBIs, hit 244. And for some reason, and and as I said, that was in 1993, he became such a fan favorite. And I don't know why. I mean, those were lean years for the Padres. So I think anybody who had any success was going to become of, but he had, he had Archie's army in the outfield and in the, in the bleachers. And there was something about him that was, he was a goofy guy. He was a funny guy. People just really liked him. And then he was on the team in 1996 when they made the playoffs for the first time in, what felt like decades. And then in 1998, when they went to the World Series. And so I think people really gravitated to him. To this day, people love him. He did some broadcasting. I, I remember in uh, Hall of Fame weekend. They play that exhibition game every year in Cooperstown and he played like eight positions in it. You know, it was just kind of a stunt, but it was funny. I don't know why we loved him, but we just did. And he played for the Expos, I think for two years. And then he played in Japan for a season after the Padres. And then that was it. That was his whole thing. One of my memories of him, and this isn't a good memory, but I don't know if you remember years ago, Reds pitcher Tom Browning was pitching and broke his arm when he was throwing a pitch Arky was the guy at the plate when that happened and that was like his moment where he was in highlights everywhere. But he was just one of those guys who had a bunch of fan clubs in San Diego and people just loved the guy. And there was no, you know, if you look at he was a negative 4 war player for his career. You know, he wasn't he wasn't this guy lighting the world on fire for a season. He was just one of these guys that people gravitated to and was always fun to watch. I think let me I'm looking at his highest batting average 1996 he hit 281. And, but he only had two home runs and played 79 games. I mean, it was, it's one of those things when people ask me about my favorite Padres of all time, he always comes up on the list. And then when they ask me to explain why I can't, I don't know, but I just love the guy and he was goofy and, you know, had a good sense of humor. And, and I think that's rare in sports when you find those guys who kind of stand out from the crowd for their personality more than their play.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just so fun to have a favorite in baseball because the difference between a 240 hitter and a 280 hitter isn't that perceptible unless you're watching every day. So it's kind of like you can convince yourself that a person is doing a little bit better if you have a really soft spot for them. It's like everything that they do, you see as this excellent player, especially if they're like a utility guy coming off the bench for a baseball team. It's such a beloved guy because it's like, I remember growing up, it's like, oh, Skeeter Barnes should be playing every day yes. or Juan Samuel should be playing every day. I'm like, what's the problem? You can re- you can revolve him around to all these positions because it seems like he would get limited. Play, right? So these guys get 210 at bats a year or whatever. And let's say they outperform their average by nine hits for uh, out of pure luck. It's like you remember the game winning hit, and in your mind, they're like the best clutch hitter on the team, either, even if you look at the stats, and it's like totally not true. So it's nothing, there's nothing more fun than having a reliable baseball guy who's secretly not that reliable.
0: Yeah, it really is. And if you ask me about his career, I can remember the highlights. He just never had that many of them. You know, and so i
1: got some love for RKC and Farako. Who's number six for you, Kyle? So <clears throat> number six on my list is Vinnie Johnson, who may have maybe the biggest signature moment on this list, I, I think. I mean, you, you would have to say that he hit the game-winning shot to win the 1990 NBA finals for the Detroit Pistons. So that's a pretty significant shot. It's not remembered like the Steve Kerr shot. It's not remembered like the John Paxson, but it's just one of those that clinched the series. Right. And it clinched the championship for the Pistons, their first one. And, I just, I just love this guy. So he was built like a real stocky guy, like a bulldog, like he was built like guy. his name sounds pretty much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he had a world-class nickname. He was nicknamed the microwave, because when you put him in the game, he heated up the offense. So it was like the points popped like popcorn. So all time, great nickname from Vinny Johnson. His game, if you go and watch, it's so funny. When they put the classic games on TV, you watch and you see how people shoot and it looks funny. And and he kind of has the really old school, like Stanley Hudson, how Stanley Hudson would play (laughs) from the office shot like that. And you're kind of like, oh, there's no way this guy was any any good. But he was an absolute killer. And I think he would still be good in like today's game because he was just a guy who went out there and found buckets. He was six foot two. 200 pounds, but I swear that was shocking when I looked it up. I thought he was like six foot four because he played big and he played strong. And there were a lot of
0: guys in that era who did play bigger than their size. I mean, that was, that was the classic era of guys, you know, playing much bigger than they actually were. I mean, Charles Barkley is a classic example, but uh, there were a lot of those guys at that time when you watch classic games.
1: Uh, Yeah. And, and, and Vinny was so, was so great because he, he came into the game for those great Pistons teams and it was just like he accelerated them and he was also able to spell Dumars and Isaiah Thomas so he was such a fascinating and important player to those Pistons and it was it was the last thing I'll say about him I think it was, is really kind of instructive is when I was I was a kid when the Pistons were winning those back-to-back championships I was Five or six. So my dad would watch with his buddy, and then they'd they'd have a beer and watch the game. And what you did when you were a kid, whether it was cartoons or whatever, you picked a player to basically be your stand-in, who your favorite was that was on that team. And I remember Vinnie Johnson was left over because he was nobody's favorite. And I said, Okay, well, he's my favorite. So it was like when he did something in the, good in the game it was as if i did it and that's kind of how we grew up watching sports which i think is a really fun thing for families to do that i never really like appreciated in the moment but looking back was really awesome
0: yeah that is great i he i mean i remember that shot because it was the year i mean as a young lakers fan it was the year the lakers weren't in the nba finals and so i was watching with disinterest but i remember that shot very specifically that's a good one i he's a guy that I remember his nickname as the microwave. And I remember thinking that was such an awesome, awesome nickname. Number six for me is another big goofy guy was uh, Mark Madsen from his time with the Los Angeles Lakers. He was a, people forget because he kind of became a caricature with the Lakers. He was a stud at Stanford and helped them get to the final four. He was two time all pack 10. And a third-team All-American in 1999. So he was a good college basketball player. He got drafted late first round by the Lakers, the 29th overall pick in 2000, and showed up and... I remember the story of he showed up in a soccer mom van to practice among all these NBA guys. And this is like the Shaq and Kobe era Lakers with all these, you know, polished stars. And he's showing up in a van. And so Shaq took him car shopping. And I remember that story just was so endearing that he had to have Shaq kind of show him, no, this is how you be an NBA player. And I think that he became most. Famous for his dancing on stage when they when he won two championships with the Lakers at their victory uh, parades, those 2001 and 2002. So he has two rings. But I think po- perhaps most interesting is Shaq said in his entire career, the guy who would beat him up most in practice defensively was Madsen, and Madsen would legitimately beat Shaq up because he was just a tough guy. He didn't have a whole lot of discernible basketball skill. But he was a tough guy. And those three years with the Lakers, I loved watching him come into games. Uh, His third year, he finally broke 14 minutes per game. First year, it was like nine. And then second year was 11. But then in that third year, he started getting into games and started actually doing stuff. Now, he never averaged any points. I mean, it I think he averaged 2.9 rebounds and 3.2 points his, his third year with the Lakers, but it was always fun. I mean, the guy was full of energy. I love energy players. I'm the kind of guy who, when Tyler Hansbrough was at North Carolina, I was like, yeah, I enjoy watching that guy play basketball because he just outworks people. And so Madsen became a big time favorite of me of mine. And he played, I think he went to Minnesota and played six years there, completely lost track of him. You know, like this was a guy who was on my team. I was watching him and I loved it. And then he became, you know, he's actually become a pretty successful assistant. He was, he has been in the G League. He coached at Stanford for a year or two. Did the uh, was the head coach of the Los Angeles Defenders in the G League. Was an assistant for the Lakers for six or seven years, and is now coaching at Utah Valley College as the head coach. So he he was almost like a modern Kurt Rambis, you know, just a really aggressive guy, kind of a banger, and then has gone on to become a head coach, which is kind of surprising to some people. But he was always a smart basketball player.
1: Funny you should mention Kurt Rambis. I think that he's too famous for this list because- Yes, I considered him. him As their favorite, I consider, I mean, who didn't love Kurt Rambis? It felt like when we started this project, it's like, oh, Kurt Rambis is excluded because that's just a given. Madsen was a monster in college. He kind of became this goofy guy in in the pros and the dancing is what everybody remembers. But when he was at Stanford, he was awesome. I'm looking at his stats, right? Right here. And he averaged 12 and 13 points his senior year with, you know, over nine rebounds for a good team. And like, it's pretty shocking that. Yeah, they went to the final four. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and more importantly, that was a fun team. That was a really fun team. Like I I, rem- I remember watching them play. It was like ABC might've had the rights package around them. So they had college basketball on ABC. I remember a lot of Stanford games, even like maybe Tiger Woods being there at courtside if the dates line up, but no, I really enjoyed Madsen. And it's so funny. Madsen is part of a group that is centers in the NBA that we all thought stunk or were the worst guys on the team, like Bill Cartwright or will yes. Perdue or whatever. But it seems like he belongs in that group because he felt like a winner and he felt like how to, like, he understood how to accept his role. And like you just said about practice with Shaq, it's, I think that he was a really, really good teammate, which made him even more fun to root for.
0: Yeah. And they all loved him. Like he was basically the team mascot for, for a couple of years there. So it is funny. And, and I almost hesitated not to put him on because he's famous to people of our age. We all remember him, but it's, he wasn't a star, you know, but he became famous because again, the dancing on stage, Shaq talked about him all the time. That's why he became famous. It didn't have anything to do with, with his play on the court, but you're right. The Stan- that Stanford team was amazing. And they lost to Kentucky who went on to win it in, in 1998. And had they not played that Kentucky team, who knows they
1: could have won a title. Absolutely. And that Kentucky team was a machine who do you have at number five. All right. Number five is someone who I'm guaranteeing is not on your list. His name is Milt, (laughs) Milt Kyler. You ever heard of him? I know that name. I don't know who he is,
0: but I know I've heard that name.
1: Milt Kyler debuted with the Detroit Tigers in 1990. He was 21 years old. He played 19 games. The next year he finished third in American league rookie of the year voting He swiped 41 bags. He was a center fielder who had no power that could lead off that clearly didn't know how to hit quite yet, but if he got on base, he could steal. Uh, He was a wonderful bunter. And this began kind of like a love affair of mine with the fastest player the Detroit Tigers could get to come play center field. And that went on while the Tigers were bad. That went on for like a decade plus where they would go find someone who was super fast, was a prototypical leadoff hitter at that time, but absolutely could not hit their way out of a cardboard box. And you want to know something, Ryan? <laughs> I loved I every single one of them. I loved them all. I loved them all. R- Roger Cedeno. I mean, we're talking about Camara Barti. anybody they put out there, these, these flash in the pans who just get did- as
0: much out of them as you can for a week. And then <laughs> know
1: that they weren't going to uh, nook Logan. Nick Logan once scored from first on a pass ball uh, <laughs> guys like these who matriculated through Detroit. And I love the center fielder that couldn't hit that could steal. And every single time a new a lot one of bunts, like... yeah, absolutely. Milk Tyler got a bunt double once. Look it up. I, I know that in <laughs> fact, I know I was at my grandpa and grandma's house watching that and that's crazy, but I was such a milk Kyler fan back then that it was a formative occurrence for me, but I loved, this guy and you'll see i feel like my picks it was fun to do this because my picks are examples of certain things uh that i've figured out about my own fandom uh and that's all we'll love the speedy center fielder for some reason because it reminds me of ricky henderson not the production but i used to love the center fielder in the 80s the vince coleman yes even- even like the cheap version of whatever I use Willie to. McGee. You Absolutely. Know. Those, those teams that were built with unbelievable speed, like at the top of the order and would just try to steal their way. And I love that style of baseball. And I think I clung to it and I hung on as like the Homer explosion happened in the nineties. So that's a long way of saying I love Milt Kyler and I love guys like Milt Kyler.
0: Yeah. Bring the stolen base back baseball. I, that, that to me, one of the most exciting plays in baseball is a stolen base or a triple are so exciting inside the park home run as well. But I want to bring back the stolen base. And, and honestly, while Fernando Tatis jr. Has, has made his way up the ranks for the Padres. One of my favorite things about him is not the power. I love the power. It's not the power. It's not his arm. It's not his diving plays at second. It's not his bat flips. I love watching that guy run. What love watching him steal a base, I've seen him score from second on an infield grounder. I've seen him tag up from third on a pop up to second. Like that's what baseball needs. They need those exciting one off plays that you can't get in any sport. The the home run and a trot. Look, it's fun hit seeing a guy hit a ball 470 feet. I, I I agree with that. But it's a home run and then a trot is not as exciting as the sprint to a base, going from going from first to third on a grounder to, to right where the guy's got his arm queued up and throwing it one of the most exciting things in sports. And, and I, I love the speed guys. I agree with you, Kyle, milk Kyler right there, man. I don't, I I never watched you play, but clearly it sounds like you're my kind of guy.
1: And now time to pay the bills.
0: Hit me with number five. Number five is Alfred Papunu, a little-known tight end from Tonga. Uh, he played for the San Diego Chargers for uh, six seasons from '93 to '99, with a, a, a little one year in in New York for the Giants. In there, never caught more than thirty-five passes but had one of the biggest touchdown receptions in Chargers history in the 1995 AFC championship game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're down 13 to three in the third quarter. Stan Humphreys drops back and drops in a perfect 43 yard touchdown pass to Alfred Papuna, who was standing with nobody within 25 yards of him. He gets into the end zone and did his signature touchdown celebration where he popped the top off the football and and drank it. It was, since he was Tongan, it was representative of taking the top off a of coconut and chugging it. Everyone thought it was a beer celebration, but it was a coconut celebration. He did that a couple times during his career, had these big out of nowhere plays. He was just always had a smile on his face. One of those guys you root for out of Weber State Just came out of nowhere. And in eight NFL seasons, he had 102 catches for a thousand yards and three touchdowns. So this is not somebody who was tearing things up. Two of those touchdown receptions came in 1994. And then he had at the end of the 94 season in the 95 championship game, he had that big postseason touchdown. Chargers wound up coming back to win that game. They're down 13-3 before Papunu's big play. They wound up coming back to win and beating the Steelers in that game to go to the Super Bowl. First time a Chargers team had gone to the Super Bowl, and also the first time in my life, I had the team I was rooting for in the Super Bowl. They got crushed by the 49ers, but that's another podcast. I love that guy, he was just so fun to watch. And they had this play for him, and it was the one he scored that touchdown on was where he'd fake block and leak out the back. And back then, now they do that all the time. Back then, that was kind of a rare play. And the, the about the five times they ran it that I remember he would he never had anybody within striking distance of him and that celebration although he only scored 3 touchdowns in his career that celebration made sports center every time of the best celebrations and all of that stuff so he was a guy that people just gravitated towards and loved and just a completely random player the chargers have had you know i'm no, I'm no longer a chargers fan but in in the time that i was they had a thousand better tight ends but he for some reason stuck in my memory
1: I remember him too. I remember the celebration. I love that team. Uh, I was so happy when they made the Super Bowl. That's when I made my first sports bet uh, with my dad's friend and lost. I think they were 14 point underdogs. Didn't oh, cover. I thought, I thought that there was no way that 14 extra points wouldn't win. And that started me down a bad road, but no, the celebration is so interesting. And, and this might be a little bit heavy, but I, I think that it's true when he did it this was at a time where celebrations in the NFL used to be really frowned upon. Right. And for a long time, you got a penalty for them. And certainly players were vilified as being showboats, right. It wasn't celebrated. It obviously progressed a little bit. So it wasn't like this crazy thing out of nowhere, but if you did a touchdown celebration, it was like people would kind of look down your nose at you and, and, you know, judge you. And there's still those people right now, but when he scored a touchdown and he did his thing, I remember actually finding out what it meant and what it meant to him in his history. And it was one of the few times where I feel like an act that someone did on a, on a on a field of sport, like encouraged me to go out and learn about an issue or to learn about someone or to investigate a background or to like, think about something like who came from a different place than me. And again, this was a very young kid. So it's not like I was dealing with. those, uh, those questions at an early level. But I distinctly remember like, Oh, so why does he do that? I'm like, and the short answer was, well, it's an, it's, it's an homage to who he is as a person in his family. And I'm like, okay, well, I understand that. And I felt like that's one of the few things where I was like, okay, I understand the significance and what this means to him. So I don't think he's a showboat even I was like a snot nosed kid who would judge people for doing it. It was like, okay, he's doing it for this reason. And I think through that lens, it was very, very effective.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I think there are so many Polynesian players in the NFL and it, he stood out for doing something to honor his heritage. And I thought that was really interesting that the, the Tongan guy standing out for, you know, trying to as an homage
1: to where he was from. What's uh, number
0: four for you there, uh, Kyle?
1: So number four might be a bit of a surprise to you uh, if you don't know this uh, about me, Ryan, but when I was a young kid, I was a Michigan fan and I love wow. the Fab Five um, and I don't feel bad about it because the Fab Five was one of the coolest things that ever happened. in sports. Who, our
0: age, who our age was not a fan of the Fab Five though?
1: It, it, my, my best friend, Noel, who was a state fan, but outside of that, everybody loved the Fab Five. But my favorite member of the Fab Five is number four, and that is Ray Jackson. Ray Jackson, the least heralded of them all. I always thought that Chris Weber was the main act. I always thought he was the best one. Juwan Howard was the most underappreciated one. Jalen was the coolest one. Jimmy was like this like silent killer with an attitude that was kind of like a mini Jalen. And and then there was Ray Jackson. It was like and then there's Ray Jackson. They call was, them the Fab Four plus one. I mean, it like, was crazy. Yeah. But he was. I mean, he was a great player. He was a great player who would have been fantastic if he had his own team. Like he knew what his limitations were and he stuck to them that first year. He only played 17 minutes a game. The next year he's playing 22 minutes a game. And obviously he was the fifth option, but you want to know what? Every team needs a fifth option. And he was a good one. He could shoot. He was tough. He was a willing defender and a willing rebounder. And I always thought that he was the most underappreciated player in sports. He never, I always kind of like on a human level, I felt bad for him. I was just like, well, why doesn't he get his name up in there? He's starting. It's only a thing because he's good enough to start is the realization I came around on Ray Jackson, right? Like he might've been the worst one, if you want to say that, but they're not the fab five if he's not good enough to start. And he was a special part of that team. And he helped them get to where they were going. And then after everybody left, he proved himself that he could do it solo. He averaged almost 16 points a year when he was a senior. Uh, you know, he was, he was a good Big Ten player. He, he didn't really have a position either. Uh, that was really interesting. He, he was able to get the most out of his talent and find the, the spaces that he needed to be and criminally underrated. And and I've always been a Ray Jackson fan and I, there's no convincing everybody else. You know, once, once Jalen got the, in, in the media and proved that he was fantastic about it and Weber did the same thing. You, now you have Juwan Howard, who's probably going to go down as the greatest coach in Michigan basketball history. I feel pretty confident about that take, by the way. I'd love to get, oh, I just wanted to get it on record. <laughs> he will continue to be the forgotten man, but I don't think that that's quite right.
0: I, by the way, I'm in love with this pick. I think that is a fantastic pick. I'm sad. I didn't think about it. Cause again, everybody who is in our age range, we're not the same age. We're close in our age range. loved the fab five. I mean, you know, obviously other than state fans, but I just think, I mean, I was in San Diego and didn't get to watch them that much, but I loved them. And Ray Jackson to me was a key part of all of that, but he was a forgotten man. Cause he wasn't the superstar. The others were at the time. And you've even seen them talk about that, that, people called them the fab four plus one and Ray Jackson was the other guy, but he proved himself. He did. And I I think that's, that's awesome. And I think that's awesome that you gravitated towards the least heralded because everybody was a Weber fan. Everybody was a Rose fan. I liked Jimmy King. That was the guy I liked, you know, but Ray Jackson was certainly Way better than people gave him credit for. I absolutely agree with that. And and we'll see on, uh, on Jawan Howard and his future as Michigan's head coach. Number four for me is another San Diego guy who never played in San Diego. And that's Judd Bushler. I loved Judd Bushler. He would host basketball camps in San Diego every year. And, and for those who don't know, he was a, uh, he played at Arizona in, in college and then went on. It was with the nets, the Spurs, the Warriors, And then he settled with a little team called the Chicago bulls from 1994 to 1998, kind of a good time to be on the bulls and won three NBA championships as a bench guy for the bulls. But we got to, my friends and I got who play basketball uh, starting in like middle school, we we would all go to these, these camps together and Bushler coached them and he was great. And we gained an appreciation for him as a person And then we would watch the Bulls who were, it seemed like we're on national TV back then. Not every game was nationally televised, but they were on TV every other weekend or every weekend or weeknights, you know, they're on all the time because they had Michael Jordan. And so every game we'd watch with Judd Bushler, when he was on the bench there, it would be like, watch him on the bench and be like, Oh, look at him, look at him, wave the towel. And, And, and I think that in his final year with the, with the Bulls, he got about, Eight minutes a game in that 97 98 last dance team. And he was always a reliable three point shooter. I think one year he shot 44% from three. So he was this, you know, 6'6, six, six, 220 pound guy who could just knock down threes. And he wound up actually play, he left the, the Bulls after that. And, you know, anytime I'd catch, uh, the, he was with the Pistons for three years. Anytime I catch him on TV, I'd always be like, oh, what's Judd doing on the bench? You know, because he, he was never really a starter. He never really in his career. I think one year with Detroit, he averaged more than 20 minutes, but for the rest of his career, he was around a 10 to 18 minute a game guy and just never became a breakout star. But I remember every time he'd come in, he was crashing the boards. Every time he was making the right pass, he was making the pump fake, dribble two, find the open man kind of thing. And and then he was a knockdown three-point shooter. So we we loved Judd Bushler. I this was a, a, a sort of a almost like a cult of Judd Bushler in San Diego. We worshiped the guy and loved watching him, uh, watching him play and watching, examining everything he did on the bench every time down the floor. But he's a guy who his his points per game averages during those four years with the Bulls were 3.8, 3.8, 1.8, and 2.7. So not exactly tearing up the stat sheet, but still hats off to uh,
1: to Judd Bushler. An underrated shooter. You're exactly right. He shot almost 37% from his career. Let me give you another stat. Three rings, three rings. Yeah. Yeah. So Bushler was a guy like, like we talked about when we were referring to the centers earlier, I know that he was only six foot six, but he was kind of occupied the same spot, a good teammate, a good role guy, a good glue guy and it's so funny to think about what his career would have been like with teams that didn't win, but you know, that's just the luck of sports. Yeah. And every time someone wins a championship, I think Judd Bushler and the people, Mark Madsen, like we're, like we're talking about, it's a good reminder that when a team wins a championship, you can get fatigued with the, the big stars and the ring chasing and collecting them and not feel happy for them or whatever. But remember there's so many guys down the roster who are, Enjoying their first rodeo and are, and are riding the success that are having a having a great time. Also, Judd Bushler, great hair. Yes, he, always. He kind of had the '90s look where it was pretty tall, and it looked like if you were to set something on top of it, it would it would hold it. He <laughs> kind of had that look, like the spiked up look. I always appreciated that. Also, if we're gonna say Judd Bushler, if we're gonna be discussing Judd Bushler, we have to just mention one of the well, a fantastic sports name, Judd Bushler. It's great. Uh, I mean it's it's a 10 out of 10 for me I have no complaints on the Judd Bushler name.
0: Yeah. I, I, one of the guys I want to mention while you're mentioning those guys who have rings and are down the roster and didn't maybe not contributed a ton to it on the court, Adam Morrison has two championships with the Lakers. Like, you know, people forget he even played for the Lakers. And it's that kind of thing, though. Those guys are in practice every day, just like everybody else, and they're contributing. So it's always fun to see them get some recognition. Love Judd Bushler. Uh, happy to put him on this list at number four. Who you got at number three, Kyle?
1: Number three is the only player that I think might be on both our list. I will say it. And that is Tony Phillips, Tony Phillips, baseball player, extraordinaire. He hit from a a, a deep crouch and he did it for 18 years. And his career spanned from Oakland to Detroit, to Anaheim, to the white Sox to the Mets, to Toronto. He was the quintessential slightly above average, do everything. He was kind of like, the platonic ideal of a utility guy. He was pretty productive. He could lead off for you. He was a fiery guy. He loved to argue balls and strikes. He was he was just so cool. Everything he did was with ultimate confidence. He played with the swagger. He was just a kind of guy that you love, love to root for. Uh, and when, when he was with the tigers, so I mentioned he hit with a pronounced crouch. He has one of the more yeah it was memorable. a very it was a very memorable batting stance. It's one of the more memorable stances in, in honestly, in baseball history. I think if you are going to do a list of like 50, everybody knows that Tony Phillips leaned back and he did that. And that caused him to be able to draw walks at an incredible rate. I mean, we're talking, he has seasons of 132, 125, 114. And all of this is resulting in you know, some pretty significant OPSs. I mean, he was a guy who didn't hit for a lot of pop was, but was flirting around like in the eight seventies, the eight forties, the eight fifties. And if you don't Uh, hit for power,
0: that's really hard to do. So that tells you what kind of player he
1: was kind of incredible. He hit 160 homers, but again, that's over 18 years. So it's like, he never, he was a, he was a nine homer type type guy, but just fantastic. You mentioned earlier, guys were sucker for guys who play every single position, right? Like Rex Hudler, Tigers had someone named Shane Halter. If they are going to play every single position, that's like one of the coolest things you can do in baseball. I, I don't care what people think about it. That speaks to me on a very personal level because it's something that I've done and it meant a great deal to me. Even like in a, in a, in a rec game, because as a baseball player, you do pride yourself in being able to play a lot of different places and getting the chance and the opportunity to show that you can do the job at all nine means that you're a fully rounded and realized player if you're doing it well, and it's not a stunt. And I think that's an illusion and an honor that people take very seriously when they they get to do it. And I think that Phillips, obviously his career spanned for much longer because he was able to do that. And then, you know, he was also... A, a, a pivotal part of those those A's teams in the 80s that were awesome. He was part of the Bash Brothers crew, which was always fun because when someone not named Kinseco or McGuire would hit a home run on the A's, like Carney Lansford, for instance, or Mike Gallego. they Two would great all, sports names, by the way. Uh, Carney Lansford. Absolutely fantastic. Classic. He sounds like uh, he should be with the Lumineers, but they would get to do... <laughs> The Bash Brothers thing, too. So many great fond memories of Tony Phillips. Last thing, he hit a game-tying home run when I went to a game when I was like six years old when, when the Tigers were down to their last strike. Remains one of the more exciting moments I've ever had at the ballpark.
0: Yeah, 18 seasons for Tony Phillips. Also, by the way, no relation, just to get that out of here. <laughs> he, I, not on my list, but I, he's a guy that everybody knew. I mean, you know, and but again, not heralded. At all. I think this is great, but it, everyone knew him because of that batting stance, as you pointed out. And he was always, I mean, you don't stick around 18 years if you're not a pretty good player, but certainly a, qual, a qualifies for this list, I would say, because he was so unique and so different. It's so easy to, to fall in love with a guy like that. Who's different, who does different things. I think one of the most amazing stats looking at it here. He had 1,319 walks in his career and only 1,499 strikeouts. The strikeout to walk ratio was incredible for him. So, you're right about him taking pitches, him having that batting stance, and having it work for him. And the OPS is incredible. But again, I never would have known that. So it's a perfect choice for this list because, you know, these are guys that that we fall in love with and notice all these things about, but the general public probably wouldn't. Number three for me is I'm following your Keebler pick a little bit with a walk on at Indiana University when I was there. His name is Eric Sir, and he went to Bloomington North High School. He was five foot eight, one hundred and sixty pounds, and he was a walk on guard at Indiana for four years. And I will tell you what it started off. He only played four games his freshman year. 15 his sophomore year, and then which was my senior year 2005 2006, he played 28 games, was getting 13 minutes a game, and shot 46.8% from three point range. And all of a sudden, just on a very talented Indiana team, became a huge contributor out of nowhere. And he was the kind of guy who would come in and take charges. He would put, I mean, and, and again, 5'8, 160, and he's taking charges in the Big Ten. It was incredible. And then to also be a guy who would come in and grab steals and he would outwork people for rebounds at five foot eight. It's incredible. And I think st- uh, he became most notable because Steve Lavin was covering, was doing a game and continually referred to him as a pepper pot. And I don't know what a pepper pot is, but apparently Eric sir is one <laughs> senior year. The next year I had graduated, but sir, actually started four games played in 27 under Kelvin Sampson hit 36% of his threes after hitting 46 the year before, but just a guy who was one of those guys who was a high school star at Bloomington North, which is, I mean, if you're a high school basketball star in Bloomington, Indiana, it's a huge deal. And then walked on in Indiana at five foot eight and made something out of his career. My senior year at Indiana, I was the basketball columnist for the Indiana daily student. And I wrote a column about him and it was entitled sir. Yes, sir. Cause Eric, sir, get it. It was clever, but he. But I got more reaction to that than than a lot of the columns I wrote that year because people just loved this guy. He absolutely loved him. He's actually now doing broadcasts for Indiana's radio games with a longtime radio voice, Don Fisher. And so he's still beloved in that community and, and a big deal. And he was a guy who never put up stats, but there was nobody on the floor with more heart than that kid. And again, you'd see him blocking out a six-foot, eight-inch center was more than a foot taller than him, and getting rebounds, and reaching in, grabbing steals, and, and and taking charges, and all those things that Indiana fans value so much in basketball. He did all of them, despite being wildly undersized. And uh, I just appreciated the effort a lot, like you did with Keebler. Like it's fun to watch guys like that succeed. It really,
1: really is. I, I don't remember him. That's that's the thing about this. It'd be is easy it to miss him. He's tiny. It's, it seems like it seems like I would, but through your description, it's almost like you just described a storybook figure that an Indiana basketball fan would want to animate and bring to life. And it seems like he checked all those boxes. Like if you could, if you could like, you know, make a real version of Jimmy Chitwood and get him to come over and <laughs> play in Bloomington. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like someone with a lot of heart. And it sounds like someone who was just like, would be cast in the movie as the guy who went to Indiana and did that. So I have to, imagine- a lot of Rudy there, a lot of Rudy there. I have to imagine that was an unbelievable personal experience for him because I think if you do that type of contribution at a lot, anywhere in college, you're going to be appreciated for it. Doing it at Indiana, I think, adds that extra layer. If if doing something that a certain fan base loves the most and is going to like be the most receptive to, it must be just a great. Uh, experience for players who get who get to do that to be at the perfect place to embody the perfect thing that the fan base cares about and that's so cool that everybody was able to share in that experience and and really realize what was happening at the time because as you said it was a process where okay we can't ignore this anymore it's not a fluke he's actually doing things
0: yeah and and the fact that he's from the he grew up in the shadow of the university as well Makes it even you know crazier than it wound up working out. He wound up becoming a contributing member. Uh, plenty of guys come go to Indiana as walk-ons from Bloomington or the surrounding area, like Ellettsville and places like that, and just never play. And they're great stories and all that. But he actually became a huge contributor. So
1: let's pause for a second to make some money.
0: All right, Kyle, who's number two on your list? We're getting down to it here.
1: Number two, I alluded to it. I have a personal connection to. It's the only person on my list uh, where, where that is true. And that's Drew Neitzel. Drew Neitzel is former four-year point guard at Michigan State. He was there from 2004 to 2008. He played a pivotal role as a freshman in the team's Final Four run he was in those classic games against duke in, in kentucky and he was really the guy who was primarily a ball handler by his senior year he was he turned himself into one of the best one of the best guards in the big 10 he, he averaged 18-1 his his junior year and and was the kind of guy who took care of the ball and was really honestly kind of like from the old school when when you talk about what a point guard could be he was exactly that he was incredible with the ball but he was a caretaker he could knock down a 3 he was really tough he was undersized i mean he was not he was not a big guy he's listed at 6 foot 185 i don't know if he was 185 drew drew is a local legend in grand rapids he went down he went to school down the street at wyoming park who happened to be in my high school conference and he's 2 years younger than i am And I remember the first time I met him, I was at a local basketball camp. It was after my seventh grade year. So that meant it was after his fifth grade year, but he was in the camps and he was two years younger than everybody. And he was two years smaller than everybody because at that age, the difference between 10 and 12 is monumental. But this kid was, you've never seen anything like it. Nobody could bring the ball up the court against him. He would just rip you and go hit a layup. He wouldn't miss a shot. And to watch these college kids who were running the camp and playing it on the team, it's a, it's a small uh, religious school up here. Not a, you know, not a big name, probably not expecting unbelievable talent to come through, but I remember they got to coach this kid and be like, are you kidding me with this? Like he was so destined for greatness. And it was one of the few people that I actually knew um, and, and was able to watch him fulfill his dreams I remember we played him in high school and I think he scored four points in the first half and it was shocking. I think he missed his first six shots. I want to say he dropped 25 in the fourth and another 11 in overtime. Wow! Uh, and he averaged around, I know he averaged 30 points in high school and I know he averaged like nine assists too, but the problem was he would have averaged about 15, but he was throwing these unbelievable passes that his team, even though they were good, they weren't capable of catching how good he was <laughs> as a passer. He was like hurting people. It was Pete Maravich a, in the seventies NBA when nobody was ready for lobs and stuff. It was a sight to behold. And, and, and then he was able fi- finally to go someplace where people could convert on his passing. He wasn't nearly as flashy as I remember he was in high school because who is going to be when, you know, you're basically James Harden, but down to earth guy, he stayed local. He works in like, I think he works in insurance, around here is he never, he wasn't able to capitalize on his pro dreams. Uh, he was so undersized, but a really smart player, really great attitude. And someone that felt like you had, I, I felt like I had a personal investment in his success because I was so happy. You realize with players like that, I think when you are are just watching sports and you don't understand the human side of it, you just assume it just happens for everybody, but then you're around it long enough and you see a lot of perspective talent, never be able to reach the point where they're able to show it on the big stage. So that he was able to avoid injury and, and, and have those moments. It was just really nice. And you were always, I was always appreciative when, when he had them. So Drew Neitzel is number two for me.
0: Yeah. I remember uh, getting to face him, you know, watching Indiana face him. And I was in college when, when Neitzel was the point guard at Michigan state and he was so good. And he was also, I remember this is just some random thing that you remember about players. He was also a great academic kid, too. Like, he was an academic All-American, if I remember correctly, and just a really, really good player, underrated as heck, but was the leader of those Michigan State teams. And they had some good teams around that time, too. It wasn't like they were, you know, slouches. I mean, Michigan State's always pretty damn good, but you know, I'm looking at it right now. One year he averaged 18.1 points. I mean, the kid could play, and you're right about the size thing. The NBA at that time, you could not make it if you were under six foot three as a guard. They just wouldn't take you unless you were ridiculously athletic. They weren't taking you, and and so it's a shame he never got to play in the NBA. But he did play overseas for a while. As you know, just looking through it as you were talking, and but what a, what a heck of a player! I
1: mean, he's really smart basketball player and i i I hated playing against him because he was so good you know honestly he was the type of kid and the type of guy that it's shocking that he wasn't born in wisconsin and go to wisconsin because yeah that's a good call yeah was kind of like the bo ryan player that that bo ryan didn't get to have i'm very excited to hear your number two number two is a
0: guy who was a big deal in college but people i guarantee you people haven't heard of him his name is matt grew and he played linebacker at USC early on in the Pete Carroll years. He started there before they were good. Now, he was a high school legend in Los Angeles. I think in the city championship game one year, CIF championship game, he was both the offensive and defensive MVP because he, was, he played both sides of the ball. He came to USC as a five 10 200-pound linebacker. And Pete Carroll built his championship defenses around this guy. He was, a again, repeat that, a 5'10", 200-pound linebacker, and he was a missile at linebacker. He was unblockable. He, he be, he's the guy who forced every fumble, who who grabbed every loose ball, who, tackled, who ran through a wall of guys to make a tackle. And he was the backbone of the USC defenses that won three straight Pac-10 championships in the early two, 2000s. It was 2002, 2003, 2004, and two national championships, which one was subsequently taken away. But 2003, 2004 national championship games, he was the cornerstone of that defense. They had a great defensive line, but Grudigood cleaned up so much. And he would, again, just force fumbles. Anytime there was a ball on the ground, you knew Grudigood would be at the bottom of the pile he went undrafted because obviously you're not taking a linebacker who's that small. He was on the practice squad for the Buccaneers. He actually played three games for the lions. And then he went and played uh, CFL football for a couple of years in Calgary. And that was it. But as a college football player, he is one of the best players I have ever seen in my life. He was a fr- uh, consensus first team, all American first team pack t- pack, uh all pack 10 in 2004. And was a finalist for the butt award. But again, just somebody you would look down, those USC teams were so talented physically. And you just look down the list and you could name off all these guys who played in the NFL. And probably the best player on the team was Matt Grudegaard. And he never did. And really, and also you'll appreciate this. In the EA Sports College football game, Matt Rutigood was unstoppable. You could, you could you could take him and do anything with him and he would dominate with it. So that's my number two. I loved watching him play college football and you can find highlights online. He was unbelievable and just undersized. And that's the reason he never went to the NFL. He never went and had success in the NFL.
1: So let me take this tact because we haven't really addressed it with, with our other selections. I think it's an interesting thing to explore. Do you think that he got his credit real time and did the lack of recognition for any of these players was it a sticking point for you or did you not put too much thinking into like oh these people aren't appreciate what what I'm doing because i mean i think i think that you're a, a bit of a homer i'm a bit of a homer yes. it's not it's that's that's fine you know not crazy but i wonder i wonder if people not being able to see what you see what was a sticking point uh, with this choice or any of the other people on your list
0: I think so. I mean, Grudigood was, was celebrated in the moment, but remember, USC's kind of out on the West Coast. It's not, you know, there is a little, there, especially back then, now all the games are on TV everywhere. So there was a little East Coast bias in the fact that he didn't get recognized as much, but whenever they do a USC game nationally on ABC, they would talk about him and how much of an impact he makes, mostly because they're interviewing the coaches and the coaches would tell the broadcasters who the most impactful players were. So I think he got recognition at the time, but I guarantee anybody nationally has forgotten about him because he never went on to have major NFL, you know, success. As far as a lot of the other guys, I think I focused more on guys that I connected with for whatever reason, you know, and, and was just a, a phenomenal player who's been forgotten. And I think that a lot of these guys, it's sort of maybe had a big moment or something that I connected with and that was how they got on the list but national recognition i don't think a lot of these guys did how about you
1: i was never particularly concerned with it i think if if i did anything with with my mental process on on these players it was probably assuming everybody liked them or remembered them or thought that they had the same amount of value that I that I did which I think is probably something that happens where there's a particular bullpen guy that I I love that my team goes to in high leverage situations and and I can't believe that people don't see it or, you know, you know what I mean? Or there's a person getting yeah, sure. eighth in my lineup where I'm like, this guy would be a wonderful two hitter. It's like, what does he have to do? And maybe I'm, maybe I'm like, everybody else can see this too. But when a movement never really gets going, it probably, it's probably healthy in a, in a way that it, it, it reminds, uh, reminds you of this player's limitations as much as you like them. If you're trying to like fairly assess the decisions that are being made, but either by the manager or management of the team. For sure. So, big moment. Who's number 1? Number 1 is a person who if you know me, it's not a huge surprise. My number 1 is Ray Ardonias.
0: Yeah, that's not surprising at all.
1: Ray Ardoñez is the best defensive shortstop I've ever seen. He played for the Mets 1996 his last season was 2004, played 23 games with the Cubs, but everybody will remember him as a Met. He finished 5th in the Rookie of the Year in 1996, and then the next 3 years he won gold gloves. If he could have stayed in the major leagues, I think that he could have won 10. If he was a great hitter, I think that he has he had half the game. He had half the game. I think I think he's the best defender at the position which i believe is the marquee position in baseball other than ozzy smith and i stand by that and if he's not the best by the numbers he is the best at the artistry because what he was able to do the way he was able to explore the space out there, has very rarely been been replicated i think it's been replicated best by jose iglesias Another small shortstop who plays the game in a particularly acrobatic way and and kind of has the same frame. But Ordonez was a master at going in the hole. He could go up the middle, he could barehand. He had there's clips of him making a, a throw from one knee from the left field line on a cutoff home. And it's just like it was this guy who perfected the craft of playing defense and playing it with flair and playing it with passion, which In 1996, baseball was a different game. There were people who did it, but it was just not not as embraced. So I think what Ordonez did is he could always do it. I don't think he was a hot dog per se, but when the opportunity came for him to show his artistry, he played it up for max effect. He would slide for balls going up the middle feet first and and do stumbling, flipping, somersault throws over to first. That would be right on the money. And he was so fun to watch. This was a time where web gems were the most important things things to me in the world. And he and Jim Edmonds were kind of like maybe the two best web gem guys. I remember, like, if they clip, if they showed a clip that 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 this play was made by this player, I was like, it's going to be phenomenal, and it might be the best player play I've ever seen in my life. So I need to be locked in. The only problem with Ardones is that he couldn't hit and uh he know, really honestly, couldn't man honestly, he really couldn't honestly it's 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 a real failing after that rookie of the year uh I'm sorry rookie of the year campaign He hit 216 and we're talking about his second year 216 obp of 255 and a slugging of 256 for an <laughs> ops of 510 i mean that's anemic that's just you can't have that it doesn't matter if if that person is discovering new new solar systems out there at shortstop. You just can't really carry a a 5'10 OPS in a lineup. And, and, you know, especially not in the National League where the ninth hitter isn't out as well. So he didn't, long story short, it didn't really work out for him. He had 12 homers uh, in in his career. That seems high to me. I am shocked. It does seem high. He hit one apiece for his first five and then he exploded for three in 2001 with the Mets. By the way, we want to talk about, Those Mets teams. Are you kidding me? Subway series in 2000, coming back from nine 11 in in 2001, he's an indelible part of that team. There'll always be the memories there uh, of him. That was a formidable part of, of baseball at that time is were those Mets teams. And he was, he was the guy up the middle I've written about him before. I don't know what else there is to say about Ray Ordonez Then I just loved watching him play shortstop in a way very few people have, have ever reached me. Maybe Iglesias and maybe the, uh, the highlights of Ozzy Smith in his day. But to me, Ordonez is, is, is the man. You said it. he was a true artist
0: at shortstop. I don't think that's overstating it. He was unbelievable. And I remember when he hit the league, it was staggering how good he was out in the field. And you're right. The bat is what kept him. Had he been in the American League, maybe things change, and maybe it's a different uh, situation because you can put him ninth and and you know sort of cover him up in that position. But he was absolutely amazing. And you're right. Web gyms were a thing at that point, and it was every night. You're waiting for what's or what did Ordonez do tonight? What did he do? And he was so so good out there. I mean, so good. And and he did things at that time that other people just didn't do. And you may, you know, guys are a little more athletic now. Maybe they're, they're, it, it 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 maybe on highlights. It wouldn't look as impressive as it did back then. But at the time, what he was doing was staggering
1: to watch. And it was unbelievable. And you watch games just for him. Absolutely. You would, there would be 15 Mets games that you might be able to watch nationally every single year. And you would locked in when, when the Mets were on defense, because it was like, he might get his chance to do it. Love you, Ray. Uh, happy 50th birthday. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't give you anything except a number one ranking on, on this podcast. Ryan Phillips, your number one personal favorite is? My number one is Eric Owens,
0: a journeyman outfielder. And there's a story behind this one. And heading into spring training in 1999, this is the year after the Potters went to the World Series and then got rid of a bunch of key players. They traded Greg Vaughn. They lost Steve Finley, lost Ken Caminiti era Uh, Kevin Brown famously walked away from San Diego to go up the road to the Dodgers for what was at that point, one of the biggest contracts in in baseball history. So there wasn't a whole lot of hope that they'd be any good, but we were used to them being good. So people expected things. Well, spring training was a buzz about this guy who'd been a journeyman and played in Cincinnati for a couple of years, but never topped 88 games and played in Milwaukee the year before and was terrible, hit 125. but people were talking about this guy. Like this is outfielder who's tearing the cover off the ball. He's fast as heck. He's got a big arm from the outfield. Like, who is this guy? He's tiny. And his name was Eric Owens. And in his first year with the Padres, he hit 266, had a career-high nine home runs, 61 RBIs. He stole, as we talked about steals being important, stole 33 bases, was gunning guys from the outfield, making diving catches, and he became this massive fan favorite. They started building commercials around him in San Diego. He wore eye black every game, day or night, no matter what. He was the kind of guy whose jersey was always dirty. No matter what happened in that game, he did not have a clean jersey. And they started his nickname was Pigpen for a while because he was always dirty. The Padres that year were bad. They were 14 games under 500 at one point in June and won 14 games in a row to get to 500. And because there was so much buzz around him, my my friends and I sort of started the Eric Owens fan club and we went to a game. I'll never forget. It was June 30th, 1999. Kevin Brown returned with the Dodgers to San Diego and everybody was ready for it. I've never seen a fan reaction in person to a player like that. There were people saying things that I couldn't believe they were saying. And quite frankly, I was one of them. Let's be real. And Everyone hated him. It was awful. And, and But to to the game, my buddies and I made shirts for Eric Owens. We rubbed them in dirt because his shirt was always dirty. We wore eye black. We carried signs. He had a straight steal of home that year with a left-handed batter at the plate, which never happens. And it was one of the most exciting plays I've ever seen. We So we we did a cardboard cutout of a home plate and stamped stolen on it and walked around the, the stadium the whole night, You know, getting people to every time he'd come up. The Padres won that game 11 to two and chased Kevin Brown out of the game early. It was one of the best feelings I've ever had as a fan of a team. And then in the ninth inning, we were kind of wandering around the park in the ninth inning. It was a sellout. People started to filter out. It was a blowout. We went into the left field bleachers where above where Eric Owens was playing and started yelling at him as he's warming up in the ninth and like waving at him and showing him our shirts and stuff. He turns and throws a ball into the stands. My buddy grabs it. After the game, we go to the exit where the players pull out. We're like, we're going to get him to sign it. The player's parking lot where the players pull out, We, I, I pull aside one of the attendants and I'm like, hey, man, we're Eric Owen's fan club, look. And said, when he comes out, just let us know, we just wanted to sign this ball. He threw it, we caught it. And the guy says, all right, man, I'll let you know. He's got an SUV. I'll, I'll let you know when it pulls up. A couple of minutes later, I see an SUV speeding away. And I'm like, dude. And he's like, that's him. And I'm like, oh, crap. I go into a dead sprint a hundred yards. My, my buddies just shrug their shoulders. Like, well, that's, that sucks. I go into a dead sprint for about a hundred yards and I scream his "Scream, Eric car stops, window pulls down and a hand sticks out of it. He doesn't, he doesn't like address me just sticks his hand out. And I go, no, 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 dude, we're your fan club. We just, we caught a ball. Like I explained what happened. He rolls the window all the way down. His whole family is in the car. And I'm like, oh, God, I screwed up. And he's like, really? That's awesome. And he, like, checks out our shirts. My buddies who have noticed what's happened come running. He reads all our signs, wants to see him. He gets the ball. He's like, of course, I'll sign it. Signs the ball for us and just starts, you know, we stand there and talk to him for, like, five minutes. He profusely thanks us for supporting him and all this stuff. And then he drives away. My buddy still has that baseball. He's, a, he's an English teacher in Indiana and has that ball on his desk and still has as a teacher for every year since he stuck around for another year with the Padres. And then they it broke our hearts by in the offseason prior to 2001, trading him to the Florida Marlins, along with Matt Clement for Cesar Crespo and Mark Katze. And we hated Mark Katze forever because of that. So Eric Owens, two great years with the Padres and, just one of those guys I loved rooting for because he was the max effort guy getting everything out of his talent. And he had two huge years in the sun and just kind of tailed off after that. He became a coach. I don't know what he's doing now, but I've always followed his career because that was just such a cool night and a great experience. And one of my favorite guys that I've ever followed
1: great personal memory. It probably meant as much to him as it meant to you in in a way. Like, I mean, when he reflects on his career, I'm sure that situation didn't happen that often to him. Right. And there, I'm sure he remembers it. Like that's, that's kind of a a significant thing. And that's pretty cool to think that like, when you play for a team, if you play well, you do something to endear yourself to fans, you are going to find your following and you are going to find those people. Those people are going to find you, I should say, and, and give you those positive experiences. I have a nuclear hot Eric Owens take that I uh, that I think I think is pretty good. Eric Owens walked, so Eric Burns could fly. That's fair. Yeah, Eric Burns is a player who uh, was one of my guys, one of my favorites. I can't believe he's not on this list. He was probably uh, maybe the eighth or ninth guy, but kind of the same thing. Always diving, always getting dirty, always running into a wall with reckless abandon. You love players like that. You love, love it. And when they play that hard, it makes you not really notice the mistakes, and it certainly makes you forgive their mistakes because they're trying really hard. It's so fun to root for those guys, and that's that's cool that your number one pick you were able to uh, you know have that memory of, and and, and share it with the, share it with your buddies like you were saying. Like that's a memory that that you can go back to that a lot of people don't have, and it was made out of hey, here's someone who's doing something I like that you know, might not be the most popular thing, but it really speaks to me. And that's another th- cool thing about sports is you can find pleasure in anybody's game in the way they conduct themselves. And, and, and as this list has proven, I think is maybe a great place to end. This list has proven that you don't have to be the best. You certainly don't have to, uh, you know, do things outside of, of, of try hard and produce a little bit, but people will find a reason to support you and enjoy what you're doing. Uh, And a lot of that sometimes comes with low expectations. So these guys are able to exceed them and it always feels great. Whereas if you're a star, you always want them to fulfill the big contract and you're, you're micromanaging your fandom by uh, based on when they leave runners in scoring position, or, you know, they miss a They miss a pass on third down. And these guys don't really have to worry about that level of scrutiny. Those were kind of like my closing thoughts.
0: Yeah. And fan love isn't necessarily about numbers about putting up numbers. It's there are ways to connect with fans when you're not the guy putting up, you know, in basketball, dropping 30 points a game. It's more about a connection and it's more about people want to love a guy who works hard. I think Alex Caruso has become a huge fan favorite in LA and he, there are nights where he produces, but he's always playing hard. He's always diving on the floor. He's giving effort. And that's what people love about him. It's not the, and the fact that, you know, he's way more athletic than he looks and he can, you know, throw down an alley-oop, but I think that it's, those are the guys we look for because we, we want to see people succeed because they're trying hard. And there's nothing worse than a guy getting a big contract to being a big star and not working hard. And so I think that fans connect with people who work hard. And I think that's the end message here is that there are so, we have these stories and these connections with guys who were never huge stars, but who were the guys who put in more effort than everybody else and worked harder. And I think that was my takeaway. Certainly, from listening to your list as well is that like we love those guys that just put it all on the floor. Thanks for listening guys. This was a this was a really fun one to go down memory lane with. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. And while you're there subscribe to Kyle's podcast, the Kyle Coster show. It's phenomenal. Love it. Every week has been great so far. Our thanks to producer Sean Daly for his tireless work and thanks for listening. Stay tuned to the big lead for all the lists.